Imagine if you could fully commit all of your mental space to being the best student you could be. Think of anything that might get in your way as a student and imagine what your college experience might be like without it. Whether it's the need to work part-time as a full-time student to cover expenses and bills, the feeling that you don't belong in a class because the other students don't look like you, anything that distracts you from being the great student you know you are. Today on Hidden Curriculum, me, education, and society. In a perfect world, your identity wouldn't change the way people treat you, perceive your intelligence, or provide you access to resources and opportunities. We could all pursue our interests freely, learning and applying knowledge in fields that we're passionate about, without the feeling that we might be doing something wrong or that we're out of place. First-generation college students come from a variety of socioeconomic backgrounds, races, religions, and ethnicities. But today, we're going to get into the compounded challenges that are specifically faced by first-gen students from marginalized groups. In America today, Education is one of the surest means by which people are able to take control of their economic standings. That means getting better jobs with better wages and better benefits, better housing and better educational opportunities for their children and so forth. In a lot of the same ways that certain groups were systematically excluded from freedoms and opportunity throughout the history of the United States, barriers exist today that make the climb up the socioeconomic ladder increasingly hard for first-generation college students, particularly first-generation college students from low-income and marginalized backgrounds. These barriers exist on college campuses as well. Well, last episode, we discussed a tool called social capital, basically the support, resources, and information we gain from our network. Continuing generation college students whose parents likely developed and utilized their networks of support to earn jobs and so forth tend to have more forms of social capital that are applicable on a college campus. Whether that's parental knowledge on how to smoothly navigate FAFSA or a family friend who might know of an internship available, the forms and applicability of social capital between first generation college students and continuing generation college students are quite different. What we do know is that social capital on campuses is unequally distributed, and that although first-generation college students and students of color actually benefit more from social capital um, in terms of it predicting their success, that it seems to make more of a difference, that they're actually less likely to get that type of support than white continuing generation college students. and. That's for a number of reasons. That was Dr. Sarah Schwartz, a clinical psychology professor at Suffolk University. You might recognize Dr. Schwartz from our last episode, Resources in the Secret Club. So unfortunately, there's there's a lot of barriers that um, that first-generation college students do encounter in, in building social capital on college campuses. Um, and I think there's, there's a number of things going on. So one is, um, is you know, as we talked about that um, if colleges are built around a certain way of interacting um, that's based on um, you know middle upper class um, college educated standards that then there's that extra hoop to jump through of needing to learn to interact in that way to access certain forms of social capital um, and first generation college students may have less knowledge of what people often call the hidden curriculum of how to navigate college, um, what are the available resources, how to use them, you know, what, what faculty office hours are, and um, that that's something that's available to them, for example. So, so there's this kind of knowledge piece. Um, First-generation college students may also be experiencing imposter syndrome, stereotype threat, so the idea that 
other people around them don't think they belong in college, so then they may be less likely to ask for help or call attention to themselves, which is really what you need to do to build social capital, putting yourself out there, making yourself vulnerable, um, and reaching out. And there, there also may be very real reasons to be wary of that, um, because on the systems level, we know that race and class, um, class-based bias and structural inequality all operate within universities the same way they operate within the rest of society. So I want to ask you about the link between knowledge of like the unwritten rules and sense of belonging. Like how do you think those two things affect each other? See, I think they're inextricably linked, right? So if you, if you feel that you belong in a space, you probably do belong in a space and you've got people around you who are making sure that you're okay, that you know, they're sharing information with you, they're um, championing you in different ways and you're doing the same for them. It's a reciprocal experience. And that's how you learn about things that aren't, right, that aren't transparent, that aren't written down, that aren't at the surface. Um, you know, it's big things and small things. It could be as large as knowing um, deadlines for particular scholarships or even understanding that these scholarships, fellowships, and internships even exist because that information is often selectively shared, right? So you may not be part of the network of people who would normally get that information. So how can you uh, be in a space where you can learn about opportunities and get that information? Or it could be something as small as understanding you know which people on campus to go to for particular resources or which ones to avoid because they treat people badly or you know little things that was catalina martinez she's a first generation college graduate and the regional program manager for the rhode island branch of the national oceanic and atmospheric administration's ocean exploration and research office catalina was featured in uri journalism professor and award-winning documentary filmmaker kendall moore's can we talk when you feel like you belong, that's not taken up by other horrible experiences, right? You know, and especially as people of color walking into a majority situation, there's all kinds of challenges there. You know, you're, you're constantly worried about stereotype threat, for instance. You know, you're worried that if you raise your hand in class, which you experience, that you're confirming a stereotype, that the person of color isn't as smart as everyone else. You know, there's all kinds of um, things that tax your intellectual and your emotional abilities um, when you're in a space where you feel different or that you don't belong, right? Um, so that also plays into success and failure rates with people of color in these particular fields, absolutely. There's so many things, so many things, and how do you tease it out? One of my greatest challenges during my undergrad was seeking out and accepting help. It wasn't something I was accustomed to growing up. Self-sufficiency was something taught very early in my household, and oftentimes, I was the person my family turned to for help. When things first got tough in my undergrad, I was reluctant to ask for help. I was worried about how that reflected on me, how people looked at me. I always felt like a representative for black people, for people of color being the only one or few in any of my classes. I felt like I had something to prove, and asking for help was a sign of weakness, of defeat. For a long time, I struggled in silence. I clung to the habits that brought me success in high school. I pulled all-nighters, crammed the night before exams, and it worked for a while. But as class material got more challenging and all-nighters became more frequent for lesser results, 
I began to lose confidence in myself as a student. Comments in class about the ease of concepts by my classmates stung. I began to question if I was intelligent at all, if I belonged, if my classmates knew I was out of place. I had uh, a lot of a lot of the typical challenges that um, people of color face in college, you know, all through my undergraduate and then into my uh, graduate program, where people always told me I wasn't there on merit, that I was only there because I was a minority and a female and I was there on fellowship. Um, they said a lot of things like that, not only professors, but students as well. So I, as you know, you always have to get the highest grade in the class. You have to give the best presentation. You have to win the awards just to demonstrate that you, that you are you know, there on merit. And even then, they'd say you only got the award because you're a woman and a Latino. I heard that all the time. So I had some real challenges, um, and I just wasn't happy with the community that I was in. I didn't Catalina and I discussed many of the compounding challenges for first-generation college students, especially those from marginalized groups. In a country where issues of institutional racism, sexism, and other forms of discrimination and exclusion are still prevalent, where historical barriers haven't been properly reckoned with, the challenges that exist to disadvantage some groups and benefit others don't disappear on college campuses. In fact, they're magnified. We certainly know that in you know poor communities have poor schools, and you know the way that um, you know public education is funded in this country is is inequitable just from the get-go, from property taxes. So we know that you know, a great number of students of color come in completely unprepared, but also don't understand the education process, as you're saying. It's, you know, obligation, having to work when others may not have to work, so financial stresses, family stresses, um, personal relationships, um, you know, a sense of isolation, marginalization, um, the whole, all of those are linked to a sense of identity and belonging as well, right? So if you aren't surrounded by people who you feel accept you for who you are or that you feel um, connected to in some way, there's always that tax on your bandwidth. Um, and absolutely, stress, sadness, depression, all of those things that can um, impact your potential for success in a particular situation. Imagine going into a university setting where you don't have any of those stresses. Imagine if you could just focus on class. You came in completely academically prepared. You have no financial you know, stress. You have no family obligation. You're just going to focus. Can you imagine that? and understanding how to navigate things, having the resources around you, um, you know, and, have, and building upon a body of knowledge that you've acquired over time because you were part of that, that network that had the social capital and, and shared it with you over time. You don't have to worry about Throughout my undergrad, I felt like I had to bury and compartmentalize parts of myself. I struggled to balance academics with family obligations and challenges. I found it hard to communicate the financial and emotional challenges that often took my mind off my studies. I struggled to save face on the outside, while on the inside, I felt like I was betraying myself, my family, my community. In your research, have you come across instances in which students, first-generation students particularly, tried to use the social capital that they did have from, you know, their communities 
at home, like whether it's a church or something like that, and seeing how that differs from students who might be continuing generation and have like a more institutional type of social capital? Yeah, yeah. I think I, I think one thing that's real, an important takeaway is that both types of social capital are really important. So it's important to have the um, on-campus social capital um, and you know some of those institutional agents, as well as have as well as maintain those connections with what we call home systems of support. Often we it versus the on-campus college systems of support. So I think often a danger is when we start talking about social capital is that it can seem to say, you know, the only, and actually I should say researchers originally were basically recommending that low-income students break ties with their home community and focus solely on building relationships on campus um, with the idea that those home community relationships basically would drag them down. And that is problematic, is dangerous, is harmful. Um, I think what um, where we want to get is they both provide different and valuable forms of support and that we actually know that being able to maintain those connections and ties from um, from home systems of support can be really important in terms of, you know, those are often the people that helped help them get into college, give them motivation for why they want to have a college degree. Um, so that's our, and are the people who, you know, when push comes to shove are like, will provide that emotional support most likely. Talking to students, this theme of um, disconnecting has come up a lot. Mm-hmm. Like you have to, you have to separate yourself from your family, not just in the sense of making space to get work done, but you have to be a different person to mm-hmm. build social capital, it feels like. Mm, yeah, yeah. And I think that that connects to uh, the idea of, of code switching um, and the idea that, that, yeah, that often, you know, you're speaking different languages um, and, again, language using broadly, um, and you're interacting in different ways and the expectations of um, who you are and how you interact can be entirely different. Um, and I think you know, there's, there's clearly a systemic problem there that college, most colleges and universities in the United States are predicated on a white, middle-class, middle-upper-class way of interacting. Um, and the expectation is that students need to adapt to interact in those ways. So, so obviously that's kind of a problematic premise. Um, that said, it's the way many colleges operate right now, which, which means that often um, an invaluable skill to be able to be successful in those contexts is, is learning to code switch. Um, and I think what's important about the code switching piece is that it doesn't, ideally, it means you don't need to become a different person and lose who you are, that you can be a bicultural person, someone who can hold on to your ways of interacting um, in your home community and also learn these other ways of interacting and being able to go back and forth between between these different ways, which um, which takes a lot of work and a lot of energy. Um, 
And so we also want to consider, you know, not only are they needing to learn all the things that all students need to learn in college, but also this additional output of energy, which which is huge. I mean, and it's a, it's a huge strength to be able to do that code switching, but it takes a lot. We started this season asking who's first gen. We thought it was important to recognize that first gen college students are not a monolithic group. Our identities are as varied as our stories and our goals. For a long time, I struggled with the idea of challenging the status quo. I feared that I would always be out of place as a person of color pursuing marine biology, mainly because I'd never really met or knew of anyone like me in the field before. Like, I never identified myself as a scientist. Um, even when I started doing research, I never thought I would be a scientist. My name is Denise Monrostro. I am a first-generation college student who went to community college, transferred to San Diego State University, survived cancer, went to Vanderbilt where I received my PhD, um, and I'm now postdocing on the West Coast at Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. So I think a lot of it has to do, and this is something you had brought up to us, the dual identities that you have. So I feel you, you basically covered it with the anxiety of that you are always missing something. Um, the anxiety that, you, that you're not on the inside, you're on the outside, always looking in. Um, but I think for me, it was um, just not feeling ever like I belonged. Like, I just kind of felt like I was almost like playing a role until I found what I was really supposed to do. Um, so I don't know if that's anywhere close to answering your question. <laughs> um, but I think there was a turning point for me. I think, and I had talked, I've talked to so many people about this. I think representation really matters. Like, so when I started doing research, um, all my mentors were um, white. So I never thought that I could be a PI because I didn't see anyone who looked like me, who had the same cultural background, be successful and be a PI. Um, so I just like never thought I could do that um, if I wanted to. Um, so I just kind of never identified myself as a scientist. And also we talked about that dual identity where you feel you have to um, represent something. Either you have to represent all of the people who are minorities, you have to become the representative, right? So if someone has a question about your culture, you are the representative of that culture, which is a lot of responsibility, right? Or on the flip side, you have to disguise your culture in order to belong. So for me, um, I think until I embraced that I couldn't have two identities, that I had to be myself 100% of the way, my, I'll use the colloquial authentic self. <laughs> um, that, I think that's when I started feeling like, this is who I am. I am a scientist, and this is what a scientist looks like. It looks like anybody. Anybody can be a scientist. Um, and I think when I said, you know what? I'm no longer going to need to adhere to people's expectations. I'm going to come in and be myself. And, you know, I said how I felt. Um, I, you know it's also one of those things like you write you ride that line between political correctness and you know being diplomatic and all that stuff so i made sure to still be in those realms but i made sure that i was myself 
I no longer struggled with that dual identity part, but I was one person. And I think that's when I was like, okay, I, I accepted myself. Going off of that, I totally agree. Like it's completely immensely tiring to leave pieces of you outside of like your lab door or outside of your academics or outside of the classroom. And after hearing Denise, it's like, of course, of course, how, how could you identify with being a scientist if you're leaving parts of yourself out? Like you're never one person in the classroom. So you're never, you, you never say I am this, right? Because you keep leaving little bits of you outside behind a door. And yeah, it really affects how you view yourself, how you excel or don't excel. <laughs> <laughs> not you know what I mean um, you don't do you're not fulfilling your full potential uh, and I I had a similar experience to Denise where I was doing that as well and then at one point I became too tired to do that and... hi I'm Eva Sosa I am a first-generation Hispanic woman uh, with Peruvian roots um, <laughs> I am also an artist, I am a creator, I am a um, lover of learning and books, and I have excelled at finding the sunny sides of things when things seem dark. And I'm a scientist. This is a special episode of Hidden Curriculum. It's our season finale. And to commemorate all we've discussed this season, we're leaving you with one final story told by Yvette Sosa about her first-gen experience. Without any further ado, Yvette Sosa. Also the story of my life. <laughs> my parents immigrated here and had a hard time learning the language. They, like, over time they've gotten better, but when I was going through the education system, had struggled with understanding like going to the PTA meetings and understanding what they were saying and so there was no information like they didn't know the system because if they had known they would have definitely been there and be like okay you have to do this this and this so I I I almost feel like it's a miracle sometimes that I'm here <laughs> and that's worked before to like really make the confidence in myself go down because I'm like, well, you know, would I have gotten here? I don't know. It just like undermines it to feel like everything was on luck because I went through the school system not knowing what AP, I don't know if you have AP classes, what AP classes mean or what their value is. I took the SAT like because like right before and I didn't know there was prep classes for SATs. And then I learned about college when I had to apply to college. <laughs> I didn't do any of the visiting schools. And I was so naive at the time that I was like, okay, I guess I'll apply to all the colleges in New York, not knowing that New York is big. <laughs> like I was the type of high school student that just read my book and was living in my book because I was so shy. I would never open my mouth to speak in class. It was, it was kind of crazy actually. <laughs> and it was only until I had one teacher 
senior year, it was an English teacher, and he was like, oh, you're, you do so well in school. It's like, so you must be taking all the AP classes. And I was like, yeah, I'm taking a calculus and science because I really like the two. And he's like, but why aren't you taking more? You can. I was like, oh, I'm not that interested in history. He's like, no, you don't understand. It makes you more competitive. Like, you should have been taking those for a while now. And I didn't learn about AP classes until the very end. Furthermore, <laughs> when I got my... Uh, when I received my letters from applying to college and I got into several very good schools and the first thing I think I was like reading I'm like oh this is exciting <laughs> and then the financial aid form comes in and I didn't understand it all I saw was how much it would cost each year I was like $60,000 my family doesn't have that I guess I'm not going to college <laughs> and I went to this teacher again, or he came to me rather, and was like, so you got into colleges, right? I was like, yeah, but I don't think I'm going to go <laughs> because my family can't afford it. He's like, where did you get in? And I tell him like Union, Columbia, like all these schools. And he's like, okay, come in and we're gonna go over the packages together. And we go over the packages together and he takes it and just like whacks me on the head. <laughs> and he's like, you're getting full rides. What are you talking about? And like. Imagine if I hadn't had that conversation, I would have just been like, okay, I guess like no college for me. <laughs> um, and so I continuously have that experience actually learning about like all these prep programs and um, like summer programs and the fact that even in high school, if you want to, you can take extra classes during the summer to keep moving forward. And like I've always loved learning and I felt really left out I would have been like if I had known about all of these opportunities I would have taken them in a heartbeat and if I had known the value of them then I would have like for me it was like oh I'm not that interesting in the history like it's cool but <laughs> you know <laughs> um so I feel like that it, it's been a hard learning curve for me because no one's ever sat me down and be like no listen you have to be proactive about what you want and you have to own your space. I had a lot of struggle with that for a very long time. Just one, being comfortable in my skin, like I was telling you. And secondly, like really like owning my space in the classroom, raising my hand and realizing that if I didn't know something, that it's not a bad thing. I, like, yes, I'm going to feel stupid, but the only way you learn is by asking questions and not being, I used to kind of feel like disgraced with myself if I didn't like I would have that experience of looking around at my peers and because they had come from better high schools in college they were like yeah like I know this and this and this and I would stay quiet but afterwards I realized like if I stay quiet I'm just never going to learn and like that's my first love learning so why am I taking this away from myself and if I now know that I'm already like on a lower stepping stools like starting off than they are like I really have to go and own this space and like I have to demand for the things I deserve because no one's gonna give it to me and like I said it's like you guys said it's a secret club like it feels like a secret club you don't find out about these opportunities and it made me angry <laughs> it made me so angry that now I just I tell all of the younger students I mentor like 
listen you have to go out and like even from google is your friend like if you want something and you like something like google it and be like what our opportunities are and do it ahead of time because that's also a tougher lesson because you find out about them and it's like oh the applications are closed because no one told you in or time or they're due tomorrow <laughs> but if they are due tomorrow do it anyways because that's how i got into my master's program <laughs> so that's another story <laughs> Maybe you enrolled in school to pursue a field you're passionate about. Maybe you wanted the opportunity to earn more and help your family. Whatever the reason, whatever your why, you deserve to be here. You belong, and you can do it. As a first-generation college student, you bring your resilience, your resolve, and a community so much larger than you might even know. I'm Josie Alexander, and this is hidden curriculum. Hidden Curriculum is a project supported by the Science Education and Society Lab at the University of Rhode Island. This episode was produced and edited by me, Josie Alexander, with the help of Angelica Mirandu. The music for this episode was produced by Blue Dot Sessions, Chad Crouch, and Lee Rosevere. Special thanks to everyone who lent a story this season as well as the undergrad assistants who's helped made this season possible. Liz and Angelica, thank you. Shout out to our PI, Dr. Brian Dewsbury, and thank you, the listeners, for tuning into Hidden Curriculum. Be easy. <laughs>